0: Welcome to the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. This is a Sports Epreneur Podcast collaboration with Coach Alan Major. We present Clutch timeout, Championship Culture, and Leadership Discussions with Alan Major. Sports Epreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sports Epreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide. In the Clutch Time Out podcast series, college basketball coach Alan Major talks to elite basketball leaders about stories from the hardwood, leadership lessons, and life. Subscribe to the Sports Epreneur podcast so you can get the latest episodes from Coach Major. You can connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or at sportsepreneur.com. We now welcome Coach Alan Major and the Clutch Timeout podcast series, a sports epreneur collaboration.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to three-part mini-series podcast called Championship Culture and Leadership. This is Alan Major. I'm really excited to do this with the group out of Charlotte, the CAS Source Group. Eric Kasimov. on Twitter. You'll be able to find this on the Sports Epreneur podcast, and this conversation is going to get posted here pretty soon. So it's just something that I'm really excited to do and. The first guest that we have on this mini series is one of my best friends in the world and and the former boss, but a lifelong friend, more importantly. And uh, I'm just going to give you a couple of little snippets on his career because I know him and he'll be the last guy to tell you anything that he's ever done. But finished his career temporarily, maybe we'll, we'll see, but with close to 500 wins, two Final Fours, five Big Ten, I know regular season titles, I think four more Big Ten conference tournament titles. Three time Big Ten coach of the year. So, as we talk about championship, culture, and leadership, this guy is more than qualified to be on here and and share his thoughts. And we're going to be talking about basketball and maybe how it connects to the business world a little bit as well. But it's going to be some content and some conversational. So, we're just excited to share this with you guys out there. And so, without further ado, I want to introduce one of my best friends, Coach Thad Mata. What's up, buddy?
2: Not much, Alan? I appreciate the intro and all those feeds you mentioned at the beginning. I can't wait to try to find them in all my free time.
1: <laughs> exactly. Well, first and foremost, obviously our society's a bit of a stalemate here, but how are you guys doing, you and your family? We're all good.
2: Both my daughters were in Spain. One was studying there for the semester, the other had gone to visit for spring break. And Barb and I were, were hanging out down in North Carolina and we get a call that said, you know, they're going to shut down flights from Europe in two days at midnight. So we were getting a little bit of a panic to try to get them home, but they made it back. We've kind of been wow. in lockdown and doing everything that we're supposed to do. I think that's probably the, the biggest thing I've learned is just uh, following protocol in terms of what they're asking. And you know, it's funny because as as coaches, mm-hmm. there's always an alternative way. You can do something different. And, and this is, I think, one of the first times in my life I've ever
1: been baffled and just say, hey, I got I to gotta do what I'm told and, and there's no way around it. Yeah, I'm with you. I was actually thinking about this. And what made me think about you a week ago or so is Xavier Basketball has been posting some of the historic games on Twitter. And uh, they posted the Texas win when we beat Texas to go to the Elite Eight. And it made me think about you just how special that was. You actually put your arm around my neck and hugged me when the game ended. I was waving at my family in the stands and you were kind of dragging me along by the neck, hugging me as we're going to shake hands. (laughs) right before we started
2: this podcast, I just spoke to a Butler class and I was telling the story and you can remember this because the kid asked me, he said about great lessons that I learned in coaching. And you remember we were going into the Crosstown shootout we were 10 and 9. And we were on our last breath. And if you remember, Cincinnati in the Crosstown shootout was like number six in the country. I remember telling Barbara that morning as I was leaving to go down to Xavier for the game, I said, tomorrow has the potential to be the worst day of my life. And I'll be damned. We end up, Lionel hits the shot, we win the game, and then from there, go on to the Elite Eight.
1: It's funny, when you just talked about how coaches always have to make adjustments, and we can even start this thing off with a quick hitter question before we start to dig in. But the thing I've been thinking about is, as unpredictable as it is, but that's coaching. That's what we do. And... I think it's rich training ground for both coaches and people in the business world like you're an executive and CEO like yep. if you're running a business right now like what would be one of the main things you would try to do with your people first and foremost you've got to be a selfless leader in
2: terms of you're trying the best that you can to take care of your employees and yeah. by the same token you are in deep in, in terms of your financial commitment to running a business that sort of thing and it's funny, I was talking to a business guy in Columbus a couple of days ago, mm-hmm. and I had actually done an investment with him and I was checking to see how my investment was doing. And the thing we did when this sort of started to hit at the very beginning, I called the CEO in and I said, I want a plane in case it gets bad. And yeah. sure enough, they were organized and, and everything is going as well as possibly can. I've always said this, I, I think one of the greatest attributes that successful people have is, is how they can handle adversity. Exactly. As you said earlier, it never goes the way it's supposed to.
1: Yeah, yeah. That, that's us. We live that. <laughs> you yeah. know, got any reports you want, but something's going to happen by the first media timeout.
2: Yeah, and you know, you're not making shots, they're on fire. You think about everything that goes into it, and then all of a sudden, it's, it's just kind of blown out of the water. And you got to adjust quickly. And I I think that leads itself to really knowing your people and players and and saying, okay, hey, that first time out, here's the adjustments we need to make. Here's what we need to do different. And and let's go with
1: it. Yeah. I've been thinking about that so much. My brother's an HR guy, Earl. And uh, he's in Delta Dental now with Michigan. And he's dealing with that same thing. It's just with no date being circled that there's an end. They're literally on a day-to-day type of mode in terms of how to handle it you know with all their people but that's coaching because uh businesses are on day-to-day but as coaches we were on play to play right because <laughs> it was it, it, you're always on the hinges of something going differently
2: yeah no, that's why i always said Alan, in my next life i want to be a football coach because right. number one you play every saturday and number two maybe 40 seconds in between plays to think about it <laughs> And, and a week between games. And a week between <laughs> games. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think those guys are probably the most organized, detail oriented people. You know, I remember one time, Urban Meyer came in the coach's locker room. He had just gotten a job at Ohio State. And we said, Dad, the guy, you know, the guys are out warming up. And he's like, you're, you're so calm. What, like, how can you be? I said, Urban, we play 40. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, exactly right. Yeah. You got 14. Right. You're playing on a Tuesday, you're playing on a Friday, you're playing on a Monday. Like you said, it just never goes the way it's supposed to.
1: And and that ability to adjust is is paramount. Yeah, that's exactly where we are right now. That's like I said, I think it's rich training ground and rich growth opportunities for whatever side of it you're on. You're on the leadership side of the employee or even players currently in college sports right now. I mean, it's rich training ground for everybody. Yep. So the first question I was just going to ask you real briefly is just give the people out there that may not be as familiar with you a little brief bio of where you're from, where you grew up, just a little kind of little appetizer before we start to dig into some of the other stuff and mix in there as well in this question, how did you meet basketball?
2: It's funny because I probably consider myself the luckiest human being in the world. Just the opportunities that my career gave me in terms of, of growing up. I was raised in a small farming community in, in Illinois. I told people I was able to escape. And my dad was an athletic director. He was a coach. So I, I was raised in a gymnasium. I was raised on a baseball field. I was raised on a football field. Every single day I was at practice. And you know, my life yeah. goal was to be a high school coach. I just wanted to be my dad. And mm-hmm. as I got to, to Butler University and got played college basketball here and I just felt like, you know what, I would, I'd like to give this college thing a try. And so upon graduation in 1990, I went to Indiana State for one year. As a GA, I came back to Butler for like three years in an administrative role. Then I went to mm-hmm. Ohio for one year. I went to Western Carolina for a year. I went back to Miami, Ohio for a year. Went back to Butler for three years. <laughs> became head coach for one year. Went to Xavier for three years, and then Ohio State for 13 years. And we've definitely made the moves. And I've always said this, if you looked up in a dictionary, the definition of a coach's wife, my, my
1: wife, Barbara, would be her oh, picture. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, she's a, she's a superstar, man. That's probably one of the beautiful things about our business is just uh, how everybody's path is so unique. Oh. I know early on, there's always something that kind of almost sticks to us like Velcro as we're getting into coaching, especially when you're a young coach, or, you know, when you're a GA or your first few years, what are some of the early things that really stuck with you in those early few years? Because it's like someone wanting to grow up and be a doctor, but then they see their first cadaver and like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to try real estate. So <laughs> yeah. and there's people probably in coaching, guys that have wanted to take that path and all of a sudden. After the first few years, they're like, hey, you know, this wasn't what I thought it was. I think you and I can both be, you know, say we're as blessed as can be because it was everything that we thought it was and more. But early on, like, what are some of the things that stuck with you? Like, man, I really want to take a shot out this. Well, I always
2: go back because I like all... Every college basketball player, probably tenfold nowadays, how kids and their families think they're going to the NBA. And (laughs) for the fall of '87, I think it was or '6, but I went to my first open gym at Butler School just started. Back then, the Indiana Pacers would come in and basically play with us from late August till they broke started camp in October first. And the first time we checked up, I was guarding this six foot seven rookie about 190 pounds. His name was Reggie Miller. <laughs> I walked back to my dorm room to Ross Hall. I looked myself in the mirror and said, Hey, you're not an NBA player. You got to find an alternative. But I think from the standpoint of getting started, when you start in this profession, and I honestly believe this, I think from any profession that you start in to, to climb the ranks... You got to be willing to do all the little things. And you think back to the days when we were GAs or, or what they call us restricted earnings coaches, all the things that you couldn't be too big to do that, that had to be done. And, and you did those things and you took inventory. You know, that's why I always had so much respect for the managers that we had and the young grad assistants that we had. And you had to be as selfless and, yeah. and eager first one in the office, last one to leave, whatever the head coach needed, you, you were trying to make his job easier. And all those little things that people sit at home, they turn their tube on, they watch a game and say, man, that looks like the easiest thing. But they really have no idea what goes on <coughs> in the of of making it happen. And you hear now, you know, kids graduate from college, they want the corner office with a window. That's why I have so much admiration for people like Bruce McCauley, who was the president of Kroger back when we were there in Columbus. He started as a stock boy at Kroger and became the president. Wow. It's like Cameron Mitchell, the, the great restaurant owner. Everybody has to start at an entry-level position and work their way up in the company. And, and to me, that's where you get it all. I've said this before, working for Herb Sendeck at Miami Ohio, You know, it was me and Sean Miller, the Arizona coach, sharing an office together, two young guys. And, right. I mean, he drove us so hard, but when I walked out of there at at age 26 or whatever it was, I felt like I could run my own program because of all the things that he would ask me to do
1: on a daily basis. Yeah. It's funny because I tell people that from being with you before I had a chance to become a head coach is that you as a leader allowed us to grow. And I still tell people this today, and I, I didn't know you were doing it at the time, but the room that you gave us to grow in terms of whether it was running a drill in practice, the scouting responsibility where, you know, you got the whole stage for 20 minutes and you got to take the guys through everything to get ready for, you know, the play Purdue or whatever it is. But you gave us room to grow. And as a result, what I learned is practice isn't just for players. Right. Right. As you allowed us to get practice as coaches. So in practice every day, we were practicing too. Right. You know, people always put it on players in practice that that's the focus and they are, but we were getting practice and getting our feet wet and growing And But I agree with you. I think just when you start out in this thing, you know, regardless of what your profession is, and you mix some business guys into it too, I think going through that period of selflessness where you have to say, okay, I understand my job description is Whatever. I think you also get tested as well to see how passionate you really are about wanting to do this. I think it's actually great that you've got to go through that because when you get through the other side of it, like you said with her, you're kind of ready for whatever at that point. Yeah. It's
2: funny because, you know, people always ask me about Brad Stevens and the Boston Celtics coach now. And I tell people they, they said, Did you know he was going to be a, a tremendous coach someday? And I said, You know, the funny thing about Brad, he was at the lowest level position that we could have at the time at Butler. And every time I gave him something, he did it. And it was better than I had asked for. It. Yeah. And to me that that says a lot to if young people are, are listening to this and your boss asks you to do something. Give it to him better than what he expected. And I think, you know, dating back to, you talked about the freedom I allowed you guys to have. You know, the one thing I think as a leader is is you want your people to be accountable. You want them to be invested. You want them to be, now, ultimately, you've got the say-so as as the person in charge. They're competent, you know, can do the job, kind of allowing them to to put their stamp on something. They're vested, and you know,
1: come game night, you're getting their best shot too. No doubt about it. That's how we felt, man. I think if you're a business person and you almost have to, just like how we had to kind of recruit to our culture, Right. I think business people got to keep that in mind in the hiring process too. You almost got to hire to your culture. You got to hire to your vision. It, yes. you used to say it best to recruits and families at Ohio State. They'd sit down and within five minutes, you would have told them like, hey, now this place isn't for everybody.
2: Right. Yeah, no question. And and I think that's something that I always tried to do as a head coach is I always tried to hire my weaknesses. And sometimes people don't want to admit their weaknesses when they're in charge, but hell, we all got them. So I, I needed each guy on my staff to be different. I needed them to be good at the things that I wasn't good at. Mm-hmm. And I had to admit it. And as you know, our staff was never all the same. We had all different walks of life, but... Sure some way we all did
1: the job and did it well. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm still thankful to this very day because on March the 4th of 2005, we met at your house two days before we played Illinois. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, where I'm going with this, but I had the scout and they were the number one team in the country. They were coming into our place 29 and 0. And we were kind of going back and forth on how we want to guard them. And I remember we were kind of a little bit torn, like a couple guys on the staff, like, man, you know, we didn't have a chance to win. And I'm thankful that you didn't fire me that day because I remember kind of flipping out a little bit and say, Hey, let's just call them and tell them, you know, we'll cancel the game. Because if we don't believe sitting right here that we can beat these guys, our guys are going to feel that. Right. And, once they feel it, Illinois is going to smell it, and it's going to be an awful long day Sunday afternoon. Right. But thankfully, I got a weekend extension there, and <laughs> we were able to pull that win off, which to this day, I think one of the greatest wins in school history with you know, okay. Matt Sylvester hitting the shot and everything. But that was one of those days where you sat there, and as a leader, you allowed us to kind of all throw it on the table. Right. And we were trying to do something that no one else had done. But part of that is we had to kind of believe ourselves and then have this collective mentality to walk in there with practice and get our guys believing. And thank God they did. Oh, no. If you remember when I called that meeting in my house, I said, we just got to devise a game
2: plan to keep this close because <laughs> Odin, Conley, Cook, Mullins, Kufus, Lighty, were all going to be in attendance and we didn't want to get blown out. <laughs> Sunday afternoon on national television with those guys <laughs> in attendance. And if you remember on that night, because the game was on Sunday afternoon on Friday night, I was flying over to Indianapolis to watch Odin and Conley in their yeah. finals or yeah. um, semifinals. I flew home. We practiced Saturday. I flew back Saturday night, flew back to Columbus, got in like at one o'clock in the morning on Sunday. And I called David Egelhoff and I said, look, I got this idea. Put together a film... Of the greatest upsets you can find. Yeah. We right before the team came out, that said, shock the world. And that was our motto as we went into that game. No doubt. Uh, shock the world. And and I, I do. I think it gave our guys a belief that, that we could beat the number one team in the country 29 and 0 in, in the last game. And people don't realize this. We had nothing to play for because we had a postseason ban because
1: of what had happened exactly. back there. You exactly. Know? That was our NCAA tournament slash national championship in a sense. And, and I still remember we came out of the timeout and we had our little debate of, do we want to go for the win or go for the tie? Because we were down two. And you still said one of the greatest things that any coach has ever said in the heat of the moment was, fellas, let's go for the win. Do you really want to play these guys again another five minutes? <laughs> 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 so once you got to the huddle and told the guys we we're going to go for the win, it literally the, the huddle exploded. We actually had to calm them back down again. Right, but the rest is history from there. Sylvester knocked a shot in, and all those guys happened to see it sitting behind the bench, and all right. of them in the, in our uniforms a couple three years later. So you were at Butler, and a lot of people you know maybe don't quite understand the mystique is not the right way to put it, but. I think every program has got to have this because you had it when we first got to Xavier. And I still remember our first team meeting, you passed out notebooks. And on the front of the notebooks, it said the Xavier way. Right. And at Butler, they've basically kind of coined that and gave that phrase life. But for people that maybe don't, aren't familiar with Butler, which I think has always ran their basketball program like a high level corporation in my right. book. They would be the equivalent of a Fortune 500 company if they were in the business world. But the phrase, the Butler Way, break that down a little bit for, for people out there that have maybe heard it, seen it on Twitter, seen Laval and Brad and guys tweet it before or something, but don't really understand what that means. What is the concept of the Butler Way? And what could maybe somebody in the business world learn from that? What that means? That's a great question.
2: And what's funny, and I'll back up to give you a couple of examples, but when Coach Collier, Barry Collier, who's now the AD of Butler, who I kind of owe my life to in terms of how he's taken care of me in this profession, when he left to take the Nebraska job, and I was given at age 32 the opportunity to be the head coach of Butler, I finally got my staff together. And, and for the
1: record, for
2: people listening, you actually turned me down.
1: Let me hold, put a pin in that right there. I'm going to defend myself real quick, and you know why I did because I, I was at I had gone back to Pacific. And I'd gone to Southern Illinois for a year. I promised the head coach at Pacific two years if I were to return. And I still remember you calling me because I was in my office at Pacific and you had just got the butler job an hour ago. Right. And you called and said, hey, here's the deal. And I still owed Coach Thomason at Pacific another year. And my dad had actually just passed that spring. So if there was ever a time to come back to Indy, it would have been then. Right. But I still had to kind of hold my agreement with Coach Thomason to stay at Pacific another year, which is lo and behold, you're only Butler one more year yourself. <laughs> yeah. and you, did, I, you got one more crack. You got one more crack. I'm asking you to
2: come to Xavier, and you no, I,
1: that's why I came. That was strike three. I mean, if I if I didn't at least slap that one in the right field, I was done. So when I got the job at Butler, Coach Collier had done
2: such a fantastic job because he'd come in my senior year, and I saw him as a and then I worked for him and and Mm -hmm. I saw him build this product. So when I finally got my staff together, I said, fellas, look, we have one of the most unbelievable situations in college basketball. That's the Butler way. We're going to get our guys to understand this. And it's funny because as all coaches, you keep a journal. And and I found my year at Butler coaching journal a couple of years ago and, and how many times I referenced, we must play the Butler way tonight. So in that, I'll give some examples as he built this program Mm-hmm. And one year, we had just beaten Notre Dame. This would have been like 93-ish, I think. And it was a huge upset. It was in February. And, and Coach Carter comes into the locker room and says, fellas, I got good news and I got bad news. He says, the good news is that's maybe the greatest win in Butler history in the last 40 years. The bad news is two guys didn't turn a paper in today. So we've got a 5 at 5 tomorrow morning, which was 5 miles at 5 a.m., he wow. you better dress warm because there's going to be a blizzard night. So a few hours later, coaches had to run too. There we are out there running through the snow, five o'clock in the morning after just having the greatest win in 30, 40-year history of Butler basketball. And, and I tell that story because there's not very many coaches that would ever do that today. Yeah. And, and that was just the process of what I saw in, in terms of you asked me to define the Butler way. I think it's doing the right thing, it's, it's doing it a certain way. And it's having a great amount of pride that you know you're representing something bigger than yourself. To see what Laval has done his time here and, you know, from when I left to Todd to Brad to Brandon to Chris, mm-hmm. to Laval, it's been an amazing feat. And, you know, as I go over to Butler Games now when I'm in Indianapolis, take great pride in, in walking in that building and, and see what has been built and, and what has been sustained, I should say. There's no question about it. They, they do have something special
1: because it's it's always done the right way. Yeah, you know what? And it's been, what, now six or seven coaches in the last 70 years? Yeah. 16, something like that. Yeah, because Coach Campbell yeah. was here for
2: 40 of them or 45 years, I think.
1: Right. So, yeah, I mean, you guys are literally equivalent of college basketball's mafia family. Somebody along the way has always had some type of connection with Butler, which has helped sustain that so long because when you're coming internally like that to either get promoted or elevated or whatever the case may be, like no one from the outside is ever going to be more invested than that guy. No question about
2: that. I could go into a long story of why I left Butler after one year. It's not important now. But I think just from the standpoint of... There's just that certain element of pride. And I think that without a doubt, I think that can be built. But there's decisions that have to be made. And the decision that's made has to have the final product in mind of, of what you're aiming for. And that's what I got to see Barry do as he built this program. And he had a vision. And yes. uh, you know now you're seeing the fruits of
1: all his labor and the guys that that played to to build it as players exactly you know what's funny that you actually kind of answered your own question because the reason why you went to Xavier after being at Butler as head coach for only one year and i never forget the story but you actually got the Xavier job because of the Butler way (laughs) that is true Because you guys had beat Wake Forest in the NCAA tournament. It's 43 to 10 at halftime, and and guys are running off the court screaming, don't let them score another basket. (laughs) And you win the game. You guys are out to eat that night in Kansas City, I think that was, in the NCAA tournament?
2: Yep, Kemper Arena.
1: Yeah, so you're at a steakhouse that night with the team, and guys are buttoned up, Blazers and well-behaved, and just the, the vibe that kids were carrying themselves with caught the eye of Mike Babinski. Right. Who was Xavier AD. They were in that restaurant that night, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, it, it was actually, I was the night before the game. Yeah. Night before the yep. I'm sorry. Not the night after the game. Yeah. But part of the Butler way is you guys carrying yourselves, not even the game's 24 or whatever hours away. Right. But the Butler way isn't just being on the court and performance. It's who we are. And it's an identity. And we're that way every day, unconditionally. Right. And so the fact that guys were actually carrying themselves, quote unquote, the right way, the Butler way, that actually created the opportunity to leave after a year. So it's amazing how that all went down.
2: It, it really, really is. And and you think back to 04 when we went to Ohio State and what we walked into. Yes. Know, people, you know, as I used to tell recruits, we were at rock bottom when that hit. For sure. Season play, scholarship bands, recruiting days band, all that stuff. And, and everybody will find this. And I don't care if it's coaching, business, whatever it is. You know, you, you take a new job and you sign your contract. You walk into the press conference. As soon as the press conference is over, they come in and shut the door and tell you the truth about it, what you just did. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> what does that sound familiar? Yeah. I remember, I remember when I got to Charlotte, I was like, okay, I know why I'm here now. Yeah, I mean, we
2: we had issues, and and I think you would agree. I mean, those first couple of teams we had at Ohio State were probably the
1: greatest group of guys. Unbelievable. Yeah, because they jumped in from day one, allowed us to create, for lack of a better phrase, they allowed us to create a partnership with them. Right. We were committed to getting them better. And every time they got better, that kind of put the gun against our head to go get better as coaches and leaders. Which raised the bar, and then you know, every time we get better, all we're going to do is turn around and hand that back to them. And so, their confidence shot up in that first year because of the time that we spent with them from a skill development standpoint. Which is, I think, a great lesson for leaders today. Is you know, it's one thing to hire people; it's a whole other thing to continue to develop people. There's no question about that. And
2: when you look at leading and, and having relationships. To me, leadership is understanding human nature, mm-hmm. and the better you can understand human nature, and and we all have done this. You know, what made this player tick, or what what got this recruit? There was never a, a blueprint for it. It was it was getting to know them and yes. understand what they wanted, and and how you had to go about it. And there were some guys that were just more talented, and and getting that talent out of them. Some didn't know they were talented, but. That was the process of having relationships and not coaching from an ivy tower. We were in the trenches with them all the
1: way. Exactly. You know, Pete Carroll uses a great phrase with that. He calls it learning learners from a relationship perspective that you got to learn the learners because every guy is different. Every guy's button is located on a different part of this frame. And it's learning how they operate, what makes them tick, what's important to them, who in their life do they not want to let down. What do they need that they don't even know that they need? Right, right. So that phrase, learning the learners, I love it because you actually had us doing that. And had we not done that with that first Ohio State group, no way that there's a Big Ten banner at the end in year two, because that's what it took when we got in there from day one.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that touches on something, Alan, is we taught them how to win and we taught them how to be successful. And I honestly, as you are still in, in so close in contact with those guys and I think they appreciated us pushing them to the limit. I think they deep down they at times maybe thought we were a little bit crazy. But <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> <Like, right. laughs> there was a method to the madness. And that to me is is what coaching and, and leading is all about.
1: Yeah, for sure. It never gets old thinking about those guys. It really doesn't, because they allowed us to set the foundation for your next 12 years. By the time that group walked away, obviously a whole new regime came in. But what an incredible foundation those guys laid. Roll with this question a little bit because I had written this question down probably either right before the quarantine kicked in or maybe right after. But I didn't realize it would be this pertinent. But when we talk about player-led organizations, I mean, I know some of your best teams were player-led. Butler guys were player-led. and with Everybody, especially from a business perspective right now, people are working from home, signing in, Zoom chats, meetings. But when those things are going on, there's this probably a level of trust and ownership that's got to be there because you're not walking into the building every day. Right. But talk about what the type of player-led leadership that some of your best teams had. Because I think anybody in the business world listening to that now has got to make sure that they've got some employee-led or employee ownership going on because you're not walking into that conference room every day having these meetings where you can touch and talk and see each other all the time.
2: Yeah. It's funny that you asked the question because I literally thought about this. I love to read body language. I love to read situations from team mills, who was sitting with who, who was talking to who, those type of things. And and this is obviously a a challenging time. But I, I think that you look at the, the great teams that I was fortunate to be a part of, and there was great leadership. And leadership at times, it, it's so hard to define, but damn, you know it's there when you see it on a daily basis. And when you've got a group of guys that are thinking outside of themselves, you know. and I'll give you a great example. I think it was 2012. We had just lost a game. I believe it was at Illinois. And after the game, we were in a slump. It was, it was February and we weren't playing well. And I told the team, I said, "Look, fellas, here's the bottom line. I said, right now, you've got seven people in your life you're listening to, and they're confusing you. And I can tell by the way you're playing. And mm-hmm. I said, if you'll move me from seven to third, I don't even want first or second. <laughs> I guarantee you we can make a run, and, and we end up going to the final four. We won the Big yeah. Ten. We won the Big Ten Conference Tournament Championship, and we went to the Final Four, and." That was the team I told the story to. And, and that group still laughs about this this day. They say it may have been my greatest coaching speech ever. But I called them in one day and I said, look, fellas, you think this is about you. This is about me. This is about me going into the Hall of Fame. This is about me buying a <laughs> home. This is about me being known as the greatest. And so I kept going and going. And, and finally, Jared Sollinger I'll never forget, looks at me and goes, coach, where are you going with this? <laughs> <laughs> and i said look fellas this is how you're playing it's all yeah. about you can you imagine as your coach if i was only concerned about myself i wasn't concerned about you how could yeah. Like yeah and I, said, I got it yep and that team i think we went on and won like 12 straight games or something to the final four but I think, you know, when you talk about those leaders, you know, I, I remember the, the year we, we started 24 and 0, Jared was a freshman and John, David, Dallas were seniors Yeah. and we'd come out of a timeout and I would have drawn up a play to go to Jared. I remember John Diebler and Aaron Kraft kind of turning around and saying, coach, that's a great play. When you have losing mentality, guys walk out and say, oh, that's bullshit. He's not calling my number. Exactly right. As opposed to that's leadership because those guys wanted to win. But you remember Bob Kohlhepp, the CEO of CentOS, he once told me, the one thing you can never overcome is stupidity. And great players, (laughs) great teams understand the better the team does, Mm -hmm. the better they're going to do. And I think that leads into the business world because, you know, there's selfishness and guys trying to climb their way to the top as quick as they can, but they don't realize the better the company's doing, the better they're going to do. They come looking for everybody at that point. Absolutely. When we had a veteran group and we would be starting off with our basic core principle drills of four-on-four shell or whatever it was, and the young guys are like, why are we doing this? And, and the veterans would be like, just do it the right way. The old man will move on to the next drill. <laughs> exactly right. We'll get scrimmage in 30 minutes. Everything will be okay. And, uh, those guys understood <laughs> the value of practice. They understood the value of preparation. And they brought along those guys. And to me, that was the beauty of great teams.
1: Yeah. You know what's funny? You kind of taught us to recruit this way. And I don't know how much this translates to the business world, but I think there is something to be said for both recruiting and hiring people that love what they do. Because I literally think when someone loves what they do, two things happen. One, they can't ever imagine doing something that would get in the way of them not being able to do what they love.
2: Right.
1: And the second part would be not that you would abuse this person's love but when someone loves what they do you can't ever ask them to do too much You never felt like you could as hard as aaron craft played one of the hardest playing guys in the history of college basketball forget just ohio state but you never felt like you could ask him to do too much because he loved it that much right so i think when you get love you get a better chance of getting that player-led group because love understands it's not about me. That word is the essence of it's not about me. And then when someone can carry that into their craft, no pun intended, but they understand, well, yeah, this is not about me either. This is about this jersey that's on the front of my chest and doing it for this university or this organization. And then when you get people thinking like that, that understand that, and they love what they do, man, I think you got dynamite ready to explode.
2: No question about that. And here's the thing, um, it's contagious. When, when you have a great group of people winning and, and succeeding becomes contagious. And let's face it, every team is, is not utopia. You've got certain guys that are just a little bit different. And, you know, as yeah. guys, hey, look, I, I know you don't like the same food. I, don't like, I know you don't like the same music. I know you don't like the same type of girls, whatever it is. When we're between the lines, we need to have the same focus. And when you have those great leaders or those great people in your organization, they can look at a guy and they know, they know a little bit different. He's not, I don't want to say completely vested, but he he has something that can help us. Yes. And guys figure out how they can get him into the fold. And that's what makes it... Successful. That's what makes a team unstoppable. Because to, to say that every team we ever coached that all twelve guys were on the same no. page. No. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, no, exactly. Well, people would never know this unless they were on the inside of the inside. And it's thirteen years later, so we can say it now. But people have no idea that our Final Four team, about two thirds of the way during the season, basically we started practice from day one. There's no starters. Guys, I'll tell you who's starting before tip-off in our next game, because we had hit a little lull right. during that season. And more so defensively, I think. They knew they were talented. They knew we could score at just about any time. But day to day, that group wasn't playing as hard as it could play. Right.
2: Yeah, that was definitely a shot in the arm. And and yeah, I remember that because it was an odd schedule. We were gonna play every like Wednesday, Saturday. And, and I think at times, not embracing success, I, I think that's one of the things I learned is you can't do the same thing every year and expect right. results. You've got to be willing to go out on a limb as, as a leader, as a coach, and kind of rattle cages a little bit. You know this, I was never into the mind games. No, um, not at all. Yeah. I wanted you to do your job and do it the best that you
1: could. Yeah, I'll say this selfishly, Coach, in those few practices after you did that, I almost became a fan sometimes watching those guys. (laughs) Because it it went to another level as far as how hard they were competing. And as a result, I want to say that Final Four team won 22 the last 24 or something Unreal finish to the year, but... We lost in at Wisconsin by three early in January. Jamar missed the three at the
2: buzzer, the tie. Yep, Yep. and then didn't lose again until Atlanta in the championship game.
1: Yeah, because before that, the most humbling moment for that team was Florida. Because Greg had just got back from his hand. We go to Gainesville and they hammered us. 26, two days or three days before Christmas. Lord. Right before Christmas. And that was like the look in the mirror moment for that group of guys. And so, But hey, man, we're probably at about our limit, but this has been unbelievable, better than I thought. I can't thank you enough for doing it.
2: Oh, absolutely. No problem. I enjoy talking like this. There's no question about it.
1: <laughs> I would say, and I'm saying this funny, sometimes when a podcast closes, you kind of offer out to people on Twitter and... and Facebook and Instagram and everywhere this is going to be posted, you know, the host will say to the guest, where can people find you? <laughs> but something tells me, I can say this, probably not going to find Thad matter right now unless he wants you to find him.
2: <laughs> Somebody asked me not too long ago, and they said, where have
1: you been? And I said, missing. <laughs> so... I'm not going to make a a big deal on, hey, you can find them on Twitter, you can find them on Facebook. If You happen to be on the north side of India at some point and you're in Starbucks, you may find them there.
2: Find me on the beach here as soon as I can get to my place in Florida.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, society's wheels will start turning again here pretty soon. But I'll send you the link when this deal gets posted and the guys in Charlotte are going to do their deal and then they'll send me the link when it's all ready. I'll make sure you get it. For those out there listening, again, this is Alan Major. You can find me on Twitter at Coach Maj, C O A C H M A J. I'm also on uh, Instagram, not a ton, a little bit more of a, a Twitter and LinkedIn guy. But we'll make sure this link gets posted on this conversation, and we'll have another guest here coming up pretty soon. But also, once again, thank you to the CAS Source guys in Charlotte and the Sports Epreneur podcast uh, for putting this on. This has been awesome. Again, like we said, maybe at some point, the uh, maker's mark in your backyard, we can make that happen here pretty soon. Cheers. I'm all for it. (laughs) (laughs) My brother has been awesome, man. Tell the family hello and we'll talk soon. All right, man. Love you, mage. See you. Love you back, man. Take care.
2: All right. bye
1: Bye Bye-bye.